If you could invest in one company that's not the company you work for, who would it be? I think Common Room. I feel like I still believe dev tools are having a moment. I think um, dev communities are really interesting and um, tracking not in an enterprise way, but tracking, um, you know, individual developer adopters of dev tools is very powerful. And I am optimistic about the future of, of dev tools, uh, startups in general. So yeah, Common Room. What tool or technology could you not live without? I'm, I like to think that I can live without anything, but I can't live without most things. Um, I would say it's, it's probably my super high, um, high resolution monitor. So I, I think that I like, I am five times more productive with my monitor. I, um, whenever I work without it, I get eye strain, I get less done. Um, it's, it's, it's very great. Yeah. Which person, if wished you the most in your career? Hey everyone, it's Sean Faulkner, and today on the show, we have founder and CEO of Akita Software, and now head of product at Postman, Dr. Professor Gene Yang. Gene has a super interesting background, a former computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University with a focus on programming language research. She then went on to found Akita Software, which was focused on solving hard problems around the API observability space, and last year, she was acquired, or the company was acquired, by Postman. And during the interview, we covered a lot of ground talking about Gene's academic experience, motivations for starting a company, and the problem Akita set out to work on. It was hard to keep, you know, everything focused on a single topic with Gene because she's done so many interesting things and has lots to say. She's a great guest, super chatty, strong opinions, hot takes. I really enjoyed this one. One last thing before I kick it over to the interview. My apologies for my voice. I was struggling through a cold during the interview, but hey, there is no sick days in podcasting. So I soldiered on. I'm a professional, but I might not sound the way I normally do. Maybe I sound better. I don't know. All right. Let's take things over to my interview with Gene. Gene, welcome to Software Huddle. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for doing this. So it turns out, uh, as I was you know, preparing for this conversation, it turns out you and I actually have quite a bit in common in terms of the start of our careers. We both did PhDs in computer science, postdocs in medical schools, eventually became entrepreneurs and sold those companies. Can you walk me through your your past and your journey in academics to founding and growing Akita to where you're now sort of fresh off this acquisition and your position at Postman? Uh, yeah, no, we, I, I also looked you up and it does seem like we have a lot in common. For me, I've always been driven by this idea that I should be working on a problem that's important to humanity. I also, I, I grew up in a software family. That's sort of what I've always known. I feel like that's, that's where my natural skills and experience lies. And a lot of my career has been about reconciling how do I work on software while working on something that's good for people. And so I feel like you can sum up my career in terms of um, most of the time I was uh, happy with my decision that developer tools are really important. Software is what I believe to be the biggest social problem no one's talking about. Everything's coming to run on software. Uh, software bugs are becoming, you know, huge, huge vulnerabilities in uh, critical infrastructure, you know, for at the country level, at the, at the everything level. Um, and I feel like every now and then I have, uh, I have this interlude where I'm like, man, uh, am I really saving lives? And then I, uh, I try to apply software to, to medical things. And then I come back and I'm like, no, 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 dev tools. That's where it's at. So, um, 
I, I did my undergrad in computer science. I got my PhD at MIT uh, in programming languages, so with a focus on uh, programming model to automatically enforce security policies. I did a brief one year. Uh, it was a pre-batical of sorts, so I, I had gotten a a tenure track job at Carnegie Mellon in the programming languages group. And something that's in fashion is to take a postdoc once you have the job just to hang out for a bit. And so that was my, do I want to be working, you know, on software for, uh, for protein modeling to cure cancer? Or am I still really committed to, um, to dev tools? And what I realized was, no, I, uh, I'm really committed to dev tools. I, I'm a dev tools person still. I was at Carnegie Mellon for a couple of years and then, um, um, I was getting really into this idea that I felt like APIs uh, were uh, were a big part of uh, the both the problem and the cure for a lot of what I was seeing. So um, I, I can get more into that later. But um, APIs weren't really a hot topic in in programming languages research, but in you know in industry they were all over the place. And so I concluded the best way to work on tooling around APIs was to leave, and uh, I, I ended up starting Akita. And now I am head of product and observability at Postman, working on very similar things to I did to what I did at Akita. Awesome. And then you know one of the struggles I had when I was in doing my my postdoc, and I had similar motivations where I wanted to be able to use sort of my technical skills to work on something that was gonna like benefit you know humankind, and uh, and which attracted me to working sort of in bioinformatics, and it felt like I was you know doing something meaningful there. But I think one of the struggles I had was things just felt like they moved so slow that I wasn't actually having as much impact as I could if I actually went and kind of started something myself. Was that something that you kind of ran into as well? Uh, yes and no. I, I do love the pace of things in startups. I think it's amazing that you know, you operate on the time scale of days and weeks rather than months and years. And in fact, I had an academic friend who said, whoa, you know, I, I'm really glad I'm in academia because just watching how things are unfolding for you over the course of days, that's really, um, that's too much for me. Um, so the speed definitely is something interesting. I, I feel like being in um, programming and being in systems um, in academia, it's a little bit faster because you can have open source systems. And um, I think, I think I think the pace the pace of publishing is slow, but I, I think a lot of people didn't let that hold up the pace of dissemination or anything like that. But um, there was one big bottleneck to me, which was the pace of tech transfer was extremely slow because what you had was you could you could write a paper or you could do something, and then you either waited for this to make its way into a mainstream programming language or a mainstream tool that people design, which could be upwards of fifteen years. And so, you know, a lot of the the new types that we saw in the Swift programming language in the last five years, they've been around since the 70s. Um, or you could wait until someone at Amazon or Google picked up what you were doing. And, um, and, and this is a very specific narrow subset of all of research papers. And so then, then you're, you're tied to both tech transfer curves and also, you know, big fang, uh, fang timelines. And so for me, uh, the starting a company and now joining Postman seemed to to be a, you know much faster ways of taking my ideas and directly giving a way for developers to start picking them up. You mentioned when you were discussing your background how you saw software as one of the largest social problems that exist. Can you you know elaborate a little bit on that? What what specifically do you mean in terms of software being the social problem? 
Yeah, that's that's a, a great question. So I read a fantastic quote a few years ago about data, how data is like a corrosive acid where you, it's just sitting there. Uh, it can only <laughs> it can really go. Uh, it can only implode or explode. But, you know, it's it's a uh, it's like a ticking time bomb. And um not to be super negative, because I, I think software is great. It's what allows for so many things. But at the same time, you know, the legacy systems and the legacy subsystems that are running a lot of our lives, they are also, you know, huge, uh, huge vulnerabilities. And so, um, I, I saw this interesting story that I, I didn't post for, um, for, for reasons that it might be very political and I'll, I'll say it now. You can, you can cut this if it's, if it's, uh, you know, not, not appropriate, but, um, I, I saw this story yesterday about how, um, this, uh, Ukrainian hacker hacked the lights of a Russian apartment building to show the Ukrainian flag. And now the apartment building owner is in big trouble. And so like these kinds of things were always top of mind, like, so, like you're only able to do something like that if, um, if software is running it, well, you're only able to control lights very well these days if software is running it. You can only hack into it if there's a vulnerability in the software. But if we think about our entire lives from, you know, our, um, our homes to our banking systems, to our cars, to, uh, what's running uh, all the commerce that's producing what we are consuming, uh, our supply chain, uh, our social networks, these are all software and, um, it's, uh, I, I mean, not to take too military, uh, uh, of an angle on it. These, these are like, you know, national security risks. They're also just like, you know, our, our, our lives are just very dependent on software and people talk about, you know, many other things like climate or they talk about, um, food shortages or all these things. But my take is, Hey, look, there, there are a lot of risks and there's a lot of potential for control of our lives uh, that that software uh, has created that, you know, most of us aren't thinking about, most of us aren't talking about. Although I will say a lot of people have started talking about this in the context of AI. I have, <laughs> uh, I have the view that AI is not that different from other software. We've been letting software control our lives for a very long time. And if we weren't scared of software then, we shouldn't be as scared of software now, but the baseline level of fear should have maybe always been higher. Yeah. I mean, I think in particular, and I've, I've talked about this uh, in previous shows as well, is like, I think when technology feels somehow closer to something that like humans can do, whether it's AI or a robotic system or something like that. And it's complicated and it's hard to explain and people don't fully understand it. People have a more of a like sort of like fearful reaction to it for some reason. And also I think like, you know, media feeds into that to a certain degree, but I think you make some excellent points in terms of the, the scale of all these different software systems. It's very different than, you know, 40 years ago when we lived in a disconnected world, we might use software in our day-to-day lives if we worked in an office or something like that. But the the sort of impact of of a problem which is much more constrained is kind of the difference between you know if i go to a a bar in san francisco and they id me and i show my driver's license number like in theory if that person has a photographic memory or something like that they're going to get some you know level of information about me my address my you know uh, my you know a little bit of my biometrics and stuff like that 
in my date of birth. But that's very different than me taking a picture of my driver's license and posting it on uh, Twitter, um, which I would strongly advise against. But the, so the scale essentially of these types of problems is much, much bigger now because we have all these connected systems as well. Yeah. And, and similarly, you know, before your lights just worked as lights, but now if they're controlled by IoT, that's something, you know, uh, anyone with access to that system can now do something about. Um, you know, before if you were just getting food from the grocery store and making it or going to a restaurant, now, you know, there's there's subtle things that software can influence you by um, if, if you're ordering all your stuff via apps. And so there's there's like sinister things. And then there's just small ways software just changes how we live our lives. And um, and I feel like in the research community, you know, I, I worked on a lot of this from the point of view of correctness and reliability. I had colleagues who worked on this from the point of view of something closer to media studies or, you know, how um, things like how, how social media influences people's behaviors or elections or things like that. But there's, there's just a lot that, that software is uh, doing these days. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you have some strong takes as well on sort of, I guess, like the, the industry obs obsession or, or focus on sort of programmers trying to, or software trying to like emulate what's coming out of like the big fan companies, essentially. Like, you know, if Google does it, then, and I'm starting a company today that I need to architect the system the way that like Google architects the system. So do you think that we tend to over-engineer products by sort of over-indexing on what we're seeing coming out of these like marquee, marquee brand companies, which might actually not be sort of a fit for whatever that we're doing or building. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's not necessarily people's fault, but if you look at what, um, well, there, there's two things. One is, uh, if you look at what, you know, computer science students are learning in school, uh, it's it's closer to you know what the what the big companies are doing. So at least when I was a professor, we were teaching things like this is how you scale a system a lot, or you know here's how you do like crazy algorithms to get stuff like you know down to this. And I, I think that you know a lot of people when they come out of school and they've learned all this stuff, it can be very jarring to realize hey exponential algorithms are not terrible most of the time and in very few situations in your life well you know tweaks on big o complexity like make a huge huge difference unless you're processing things at google or amazon scale so i think it's it's not even necessarily like a google or amazon scale problem but when you learn algorithms or when you learn data structures um what actually feel feels like you're making use of uh, of, of these lessons is is this hyperscale stuff, and then I think another part of it is if you look at uh, the well written blog posts out there, they often come out of the big companies who can afford to spend time having an engineer, you know, spend spend the month cleaning up that blog post. They have the marketing department to to disseminate that. Or, you know, there there's enough people with enough bandwidth to really, you know, provide polished content for the world about this is how we did this. This is how we did that. And so um, I, I think it's not necessarily people's fault that they say, well, so-and-so at Google did it this way. You know, it, it both resonates with their sensibilities about this is what a cohesive case study looks like. And it also might resonate with what they learned in school or boot camp. And so, of course, people are going to gravitate towards that. 
Um, and I think that there's also a sense of if you're not doing things at that scale, is it a blog post to scoff at or is it not? And, and I think there hasn't been an analogous genre of, you know, I, uh, I, I wrote this like very simple exponential time algorithm. It took me five minutes, but look, it got me, you know, 10 million users and I'm, um, I, I, I mean, I, I would love to see more of those posts or, or maybe not even 10 million users, but look, you know, I, I, I'm a software developer at a mom and pop shop. Like actually this is all we need. I think that like that genre of blog post isn't necessarily valued the same way. Um, and, and it really is, isn't a thing yet. Yeah. I mean, you're really seeing like the Instagram version of what's going on within these companies anyway, because as you, as you mentioned, like there's. They're, they're creating a, the very sort of polished asset that they're going to put out there that helps with their recruiting and promoting whatever they're doing. But it's not necessarily telling the full story of even what's going on within the company. Do you think also that there might be a challenge in terms of you know, people copying things that they see without like fully understanding what they're copying and just assuming that that's the, the way that they should be doing things? Yeah. So there, there are also great blog posts. I think there's, there's multiple blog posts out there. If you search, you are not Google. People have written blog posts about that. Um, and, and I, I think that again, it's, you know, partly, uh, blog posts aren't like, oh, well, this is how much data Google processes in a day. And so, you know, here, here are all of our stats for how we decided to do it this way. And then, you know, part of it is people are just saying, Hey, you know, this is, this is what we have to do. Um, I, I think the more senior engineers I've worked with have, have been um, experienced enough to qualify. Well, this is what we have to support. It doesn't make sense for us to do it that way. But I, I, think, I think that, you know, it, it is uh, very tempting for a, a lot of engineers to reach for patterns that um, are well known. Yeah, I also think that there's a certain, you know, especially if you're coming out of sort of a classically trained computer science program, there's, um, you might sort of fall in love with certain like approaches or something like that, where like we mentioned, you know, I want to get the optimal big O from this, you know, thing, whether it makes sense for what you're trying to do is like, oh, I actually only have five users. I can probably just, you know, hack this thing together. It doesn't matter whether it runs in log N or N squared or exponential at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we never, we never taught that in school. You know, if, if I look at the entire curriculum that I was familiar with, there, there's never a problem that said, Hey, you have five users. You have to ship this in two days. <laughs> what, what algorithmic shortcuts do you take to, um, to do this? You know, that, that just wasn't part of any, any class that I took or taught. Yeah. Yeah, when I talked to uh, Joe Reese, uh, who's uh, well known in the data engineering space, like one of the things that we talked about was how now people kind of fall in love with this idea, this like complicated modern data stack where we're plugging together like hundreds of different tools. When a lot of times you something really simple like a Python script and an Excel spreadsheet might actually solve the problem. So it's kind of getting back to this like practical computer science versus. Uh, and, and looking at it in terms of what do I need to accomplish now versus, you know, what is, do I need to do if I'm serving billions of people or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to people love to see complex setups. They love to see kind of like the sci-fi version. And so um, it, it's it's really hard to say, here's my setup. I have two tools. You, it takes a 
you know, a certain level of reputation and confidence for that, for the person who's posting that, not to just expect to be laughed off of the internet. And it also takes an amount of reputation and confidence for people not to laugh that person off the internet. Yeah. It's hard to write like a, like a, a, a blog post about architecture, which is like get it, a super simple thing where you just have, I, I don't know, like a front-end application running in an EC2 instance with a database on the same server or something like that. People are going to be like, oh, you know, what is this? Like, where are your, you know, 50 different AWS services and so forth? Absolutely. I think that, you know, a lot of like small apps I see, like you're maybe using like, uh, uh, SQLite, you start out using SQLite, then you move to Postgres. And I think there's a lot of temptation to say like, okay, let's do something really fancy now. But, um, you know, I, I think people feel ashamed or they, they just don't feel like there's an audience for people showing their super simple setups. Or, um, yeah, I, I just think that there's, uh, from from building a tool that's targeted towards earlier companies, from building a tool that's targeted towards companies that don't have the bandwidth or the resources to really set everything up, there's some patterns I've seen that every time I talked about them, people come out of the woodwork and they all say, that's my setup too. Um, but just no, nobody else talks about it, which which is um, you know t- too bad because I think people could really help each other out by trading trading notes about their SQLite setups. Yeah. All right. Well, for those listening, you heard it here. Sh- you know, share yourself regardless of whether you think it's too simple or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think people are just like, well, you know, I'm not at scale yet. And it's like, come on, most of us are never going to be at that scale. It's fine. It's really helpful to people to to share where you are now. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about Akita and your, you know, your time and motivation to become an entrepreneur. So maybe we start with motivation. Like you talked about the, you know, wanting to work on things that are, you know, do good in the world and and have impact. But why? there's lots of ways of doing that. Like why become an entrepreneur? Like why take on that headache? There's a lot of problems beyond just like having impact to come along with being the founder of an org of a company. Yeah. I'm starting company was not my first choice of how to go about this problem. Uh, but I had always been prepared <laughs> to start a company if I needed to. So, um, I, you know, b- before starting Akita, I had done the requisite, you know, entrepreneur curious things. Like I took the entrepreneurship class, uh, when I was in grad school. Um, I, I'd spent a year thinking about starting a different company, uh, with, with a friend, uh, when I was in grad school. She was in business school and, and I learned a lot from doing that. I met a lot of other entrepreneurs, uh, that, that ultimately didn't go anywhere, but, um, you know, I, I, I got a sense of this is what it would take to start a company. And then, um, I also started an accelerator, uh, in collaboration with Highland Capital in 2015 with a friend, uh, that friend went on to become a, a proper VC for a few years, but it was mostly a project where he had this idea for the accelerator and I felt that he needed someone to help him do it. And I, I, I was curious to learn a little more about it too. It's called cybersecurity factory. Um, there's like a couple dozen companies that have gone through it, including like us early stage or me early stages of Akita. And so prior to starting Akita, I had, um, I had a decent idea of what it would take to start a company. I, um, didn't really want to do entrepreneurship for the sake of entrepreneurship. That's what I learned. 
uh, from my one year, I, I thought about starting a company in grad school. I, re- I realized that I'm pretty tied to the technical skills that I have, the technical perspective I have, the technical insights I have. When you spend over a decade developing that, it's um, first of all, it's a shame to to throw that away, but also that's just what you live and breathe. You know, like it's just it's exciting to be, uh, it's exciting to have insights about something. And I realized that that's that's just the the things I have insights about. Um, although that said the kinds of technical insights I had around developer tools and programming languages, those usually get put to use on platform teams or internal tools teams or uh, programming language research teams within much bigger companies. And so at the time um, I was, you know, thinking about, I am interested in working on API related problems outside of academia. I, the first thing I did was go to my friends at Google, go to my friends at Facebook, see what they were working on and see what kind of match there was. And what I realized was Google and Facebook are working on Google Facebook scale problems. And so most of the super technical problems that Google and Facebook work on, uh, and even Amazon, I, I had my, my friends at Amazon as well, they were like super large scale scaling problems. I've never been a scaling person. I've always been more of a like, here's an innovative programming model, or did you think about the world this way kind of person? And I felt like you know, like putting me on a scaling problem wasn't, wasn't the right fit at the time. What I really wanted to do was think about there's so many APIs. How can we better understand systems with heterogeneous APIs? How can we better incorporate legacy systems into, into what we're doing? And, um, doing this as a startup would be harder because, you know, it's, it's kind of like a multi-year effort, <laughs> uh, like multi-decade effort in some ways, but it would give me the time to really test out these ideas with smaller customers than all of Amazon or all of Facebook, or even one team within Amazon, which is needing to serve requests at the scale of Amazon, if, if that makes sense. And so once I realized that, um, well, I, I looked down the path of starting a company and, you know, most, most startups fail, most dev tool startups definitely fail. Um, but, but I was okay with the fact that even if we were independent for a few years, I could work out some of these ideas enough to carve out a niche so that we could uh, we could continue the vision as part of a bigger company. And, and, and that's effectively what's happening now at Postman. So when you were starting, you, you mentioned you're, you focus on like trying to figure out a way to understand what's happening with all these different APIs and heterogeneous APIs. So what was the specific problem that you wanted to try to address and solve for? Yeah, so here's what I noticed when I talked to every single software team. So when I was a professor, I spent a lot of time just visiting industry teams, uh, talking uh, with people I met when I spoke at industry conferences. And what struck me was over and over again, they'd say, Gene, the ideas you talk about sound fantastic. If we lived in an ideal world, that would be great. But here's what we're dealing with. And um, even my advisor once joked that some of the techniques that we were uh, talk that I was talking about were like, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, you know, you kind of have some problems, but if you just ate healthy since the day you were born, you wouldn't be having those problems right now. <laughs> it doesn't help at that point. Um, and, and so, um, there, there are a few specific topics that I was interested in. One was that, um, I, I was working on programming language design and program analysis, like static analysis, dynamic analysis. And all of that was about, you know, how do we have airtight guarantees on languages, um, at, at the application layer? And what I realized was 
software was so much bigger than a single application layer. It was, you know, the application layer and then everything below. And it was the application layer and everything you're calling across the network. And so this is where API calls really came into my consciousness. And in fact, one of the last papers I wrote in academia was about how to enforce security policies across REST APIs. Because um, there, there, there are like a few things motivating that paper that I, I can get into at some point. But what I realized from this paper was that um, REST APIs were very simple. REST APIs were, were kind of a, a boundary that you could start enforcing things. And it, it was often much simpler to look at what's happening at the REST API layer. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be REST. It could be gRPC. It could be GraphQL. It could be something else. But it's often much simpler and impactful to look at what's happening at the API layer instead of um, every single line of uh, of code. Because what I was running into was, you know, I, I had drank the Kool-Aid of if you use types everywhere, it's great. And, you know, anytime you interface with an untyped language, what happens? Or if you use this nice, safe language, it's great. But anytime you make an API call, what happens? And so um, I, I felt like if I was if what I was interested in was software liability and getting a handle on this is what's going on with our software systems. This is how we have cross system guarantees. Uh, moving up a level and operating at the REST API layer was going to be more impactful. So that, that was the first part of it. And the second part of it was I, I had been living in the world of airtight guarantees. Like, you know, I, I want... Um, I want to be able to prove this bound on the number of times I access this memory resource, or I want to prove that, you know, the memory never gets touched in this way. And um, I, I sort of inverted uh, how I felt about software systems. So previously it was about, I, I know exactly what guarantee I want to enforce. And every, every tool that I'm working on, every action that I'm working toward is in, in the name of enforcing guarantees, what I realized was people actually don't know um, a lot of the emergent behaviors that their system is about to do. And a lot of um, making sure your software is making sense is about eyeballing if the emergent behaviors are okay. If those emergent behaviors are manifesting themselves in the form of log lines, that's a little hard. And so one of my uh, goals was to give people a way to understand what their software was doing at a higher level than logs and based on things they didn't necessarily think to log. And again, watching software at the API layer was very appealing to me there. So going back to your question of what problem was I trying to solve, there was this idea that we don't have a handle on what our software systems are doing. We're not able to to guarantee or, or have have some sense of confidence that the software is doing what it's supposed to. But there's a bigger problem, which is what is the software supposed to do has become more unclear. So you talked about these like emergent behaviors. So can you give an example of what you mean by an emergent behavior in a software system? Uh, yeah, a very simple one is um, permission systems. So you might think that a lot of permission systems are very cut and dry. Like Alice can see this, Bob cannot. And this is because Alice is my friend and Bob is not. And um, what um, if you if you talk to people responsible for enforcing these permission systems, like in practice, there, it's it's actually uh, there are much more complex interactions. So if we think about just like Facebook or Instagram, right? There's friend relationships, and there's friends of friends, and there's pages. There's there's all kinds of different components. So what I actually am and am not uh, allowed to see depends on how the components are interacting, how permissions got implemented across these components. So if I just wanted to prove, you know, like 
my friends can always see this and other people can't, um, that might not actually be provable because there's like a thousand exceptions, if that, if that makes sense. And so, um, this is actually the example that made me realize, hey, like any any property that you might care about, about a software system, it's not so cut and dried. It's actually super implementation based. And I'm, you know, you kind of have to like have some way of looking at what's actually going on. And so um Mark on my team said he once saw a talk by some someone who who said that, you know, a very major retail uh, company software team, how they understood their permissions on their site was they just went and documented like this is what, all the cases that people can see different things. So so that's one example. Another example is um I, I think a lot of teams, if you ask them up front, like how many errors do you tolerate on this endpoint or um you know, like um, how many like timeouts do you tolerate? It's not zero, but the actual number, like it's, there's no like platonic number of errors you tolerate. It's just really like, what was it like last week? Was everything roughly okay? Were people able to refresh and things, things kind of worked out, you know? And, and so, um, I, I think this, this model of software, uh, rules can all be derived philosophically. Uh, it, it is becoming increasingly less of a fit with reality. So how are companies, you know, outside of using something like what you're providing at Akita or we're providing there, how are they like traditionally like trying to solve these different problems? Is it just sort of combing through log files if they're doing anything at all? Um, so yeah, so what, what we're trying to do is, um, so today, if you want to, you know, make sure your system is generally reliable and robust and you're a more mature company, you would get something like Datadog, you'd get something like New Relic, you would spend a bunch of time, uh, setting it up, getting graphs and, um, doing what I was describing, eyeballing things week over week when there's an incident, making sure you look at the right graphs. I once, uh, there was a period of time I was asking people to walk me through their Grafana setups. And one guy showed me his 200 Grafana dashboards. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it takes non-trivial time to set up 200 Grafana dashboards. Um, but, but you know, I, I think you can take the time and put together, you know, enough tools to eyeball it. What we're building at Akita, the goal is, or I guess what we're building with, um, what we were building with Akita, what we're building with Postman Live Insights now is um, we want to give people software or the understanding of your production system, like, in a box. Four dummies in a box. Within 15 minutes, you get to see something about your system. And I know this sounds vague, but but if, like, you know, like what, what people are doing now is like there's stuff they care about in their system. This actually differs company across company. You know, there's a set of endpoints. They sort of eyeball them week over week and see like, is anything wrong? And then if something's wrong in your system, you want to look at, you know, a bunch of other graphs to see what might be uh, causing things to go wrong. And so um, I, I would say what we're doing, we don't call it alerting or monitoring because we're, we're like, you know, our, our, our top, uh, our, our top value is not providing the alerts themselves, but it's really allowing people to, to see what's going on with their system. And so in DevOps, I mean, uh, observability serves this function. A lot of people associate observability with very specific functions like, you know, traces, um, logs, traces and metrics. What we're doing is, uh, spiritually observability because we're giving people this understanding, but it, it, it's at the API level, which is why we call it API observability. Okay. And then in terms of like how it works, is this 
you know, similar to like how a lot of modern logging systems where his agent model essentially sitting on these production systems that's pulling in the uh, monitoring what's happening at the API level. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, we modeled our agent insertion uh, very similarly to Datadog. Uh, the big difference between us and some other systems is our agent requires no code annotations. That was really important to us because in order to get into a legacy subsystem or um, code that someone doesn't necessarily have um, a lot of ability or bandwidth to change, we want to be able to drop in. So we are based on uh, something called BPF, Berkeley Packet Filter. We do passive traffic sniffing, essentially. And um, we're, we're not the only company that uses BPF or eBPF, but we're the only company I know of that's put in a lot of work to make this data accessible. So there are a lot of companies out there that, well, okay. So there are a lot of companies out there with an agent. Uh, many of those will require some amount of co-changes from the developer. Then of those companies uh, that don't like us that are using something like traffic sniffing, uh, most of every other company out there, uh, they're really focused on, okay, this is some really high tech, uh, really high cardinality, detailed data. What do you, the expert programmer, want to do about it? And we flipped that notion on its head and we said, look, you know, this, this is an awesome technology, being able to watch systems without knowing anything about them. The challenge we set out for ourselves was, can we actually tell people stuff about their systems that are interesting that they didn't know without them giving us any information about their system besides installing? So how do you actually go from essentially packet to reconstructing what's happening in the AGI where? Uh, yeah, so we use Go Packet. It's pretty standard uh, packet reconstruction there. I would say the more interesting piece of that is how do we go from the reconstructed or the reconstructed packets to actual API endpoints. And there we have heuristic algorithms that we worked on for years that look at individual API calls and consolidate into, into you know, all the ones that are like users slash user zero slash user one. That's like actually like the user path. And so instead of saying, hey, you have three million different endpoints that are like, you know, user one slash like, you know, item two slash uh, thing four. It's like, all right, it's like the user, the, the user variable and then the, the item variable and then the thing variable like that. That, that sounds like, you know, to people who aren't uh, using APIs a lot like that, that sounds very boring and low level. But actually being able to collapse, you know, three million calls into here are your 10,000 endpoints or 1000 endpoints. That actually turned out to be the biggest win of what we were working on. Because we we built that in order to do actually a bunch of other things. We thought, oh, you know, type inference or, um, you know, where we're really, what we're really doing this for is uh, inferring properties and patterns that we see about APIs. And um, we, we've essentially stopped at just inferring the endpoints alone, tells people something they don't know about their system, like, 90% of the time, which is, hey, did you know you have this endpoint in your system and you weren't thinking about it? Um, and doing it um, with some level of fidelity has turned out to actually be super hard. It's still it's still a work in progress for us to get the long tail of that and and even the maybe the middle tail of that. So it's essentially you're reconstructing the endpoints, you're being able to collapse them based on these patterns. So you're not reconstructing the body of the payload, just essentially the, the, the URL structure. 
Yeah, just just the endpoints. So our agent also um, pulls some information out of the body. Um, we 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 have a type inferencer. Um, I will say that I feel like people are, are always saying, "Oh, that's really cool. That's really cute." But I don't know that anyone <laughs> looks at the types. Uh, the structure of the endpoint seems to be the mo- the the most useful, and and then response code, um, and and you know the 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 basic uh, request response metadata has turned out to be way more useful than. I expected starting out. And then that all of this presumably is surfacing like a dashboard where I can analyze it and see the breakdown of, you know, potentially errors by endpoint and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in our, in our Postman alpha, we're looking at which dashboards do our Postman users want to see now. With Akita, what we had was your errors over time, your performance over time, and the ability to slice and dice your endpoints by slowest, fastest, most used, least used, um, that 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 kind of thing. And so we're we're looking at what you know what what dashboards do our alpha users in our in our Postman Live Insights product want to see now? What were some of the these some of the your observed some of the big aha moments for some of the customers that you worked with that? were adopting the software? Were there things that they like, you know, immediately recognized that they had no idea was a problem? Yeah. So I had always operated under the mantra, show users something they don't know and show it to them as quickly as they could. And I had thought this would be something very fancy. Like, did you know you had this pattern about your systems? And I feel like the one lesson I keep learning is that the simplest thing is often the most useful thing. And so I'm simply showing users their endpoints. Often, you know, what they say is, oh, I knew about these five. Wait, what's this endpoint doing here? Or um, once we started adding error and latency information, oh, I I knew that these five were slow, but what's the sixth one doing being so slow? Um, And uh, so so that, that was one big aha moment. And then another lesson I kept learning was users know best about their own systems. So I think initially we were all about like, we're going to automate all of path parameter inference or we're going to automatically show people like, here are the top five things you care about. And what we realized was for different users, like our users are not dumb and they're very practical. And so sometimes they care about slowest, sometimes they care about this, sometimes they care about that. They they um, If you give them the right tools to search for the right part, of the information that you have, that's much more useful than trying to do everything for them. And so that, 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 that lesson I learned in many forms over, over the years. And then, you know, last year in the last six months or so, you were acquired by Postman. So why, why sell to Postman? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So we, I'm, so I, I would say I am uh, maybe a, uh, unusual entrepreneur in that again, first I, uh, I, I got into the whole situation not to like have my own company forever, but because I felt like this, this, uh, problem needed to be solved. This product needed to exist. What this product looks like obviously evolved over time. Um, side note, we actually started out as an API security company to, you know, show APIs for security vulnerabilities and it evolved into a dev tool. Um, but to me, I, I was, always open to the idea that we could be better off as part of a bigger company. 
if uh, simply for the reason that most dev tools live within bigger companies. Like it is really hard <laughs> to be a dev tool as a startup. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying dev tool startups don't exist. Shout out to all the dev tool startups out there. I, I have a lot of respect for all of you guys. I, th I think it's, it's great that you're all fighting the good fight. Um, but, but I think that, you know, um, having a bigger, um, being part of a bigger platform gives you a lot of ability to do things if you're a dev tool. And so, um, I, I was always open to, to that possibility. I think that if you had asked me, you know, maybe five years ago, uh, ago, which platform I, I would predict that we were part of, I would probably thought like Microsoft. Cause I think Microsoft is one of the best dev tools companies in the world, you know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, the biggest platform, just like, I don't know, Microsoft absorbs all dev tools at some point. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, as, as of last year, I felt like we'd made really great independent progress in, in terms of building out the tech, um, defining the initial user base. Base, really building something that seemed to be resonating with, with our early users. Um, what we were missing was sort of what happens after the initial experience. So we built something, you could drop it in within 15 minutes, we show you some stuff. And then there was the question, and then what? And so, you know, our early users were like, cool, we're using this in weekly ops review, but like, you know, like, do you integrate, like, you know, what happens when we mature a little bit? Can you build us this? Can you build us that? Like, do you integrate with Datadog next? And for us as a small company, if we just integrated with Datadog, we're kind of better off just maybe being part of them, you know? Um, and so at that point, um, we were we were also fundraising at the time. And so I, I felt it was prudent to think about, should we be part of a bigger platform and what kind of bigger platform should we be a part of? And so um, Postman had approached us previously, Datadog, um, you know, the usual suspects had had all talked to us before. And what became really clear was we had a point of view on monitoring and observability that was actually um, much more compatible with an API company than with a monitoring and observability company, if that makes sense. Because every other monitoring and observability company, they had like bet their, you know, bet their everything on like, we're going to do alerts this way, or we're going to do tracing this way, or, you know, they, they had their point of view. Like we actually have a pretty bold stake in the ground when it comes to like, API all, all day, API all the way. And so Postman was, was like, great, you know, what we can offer you is like, we have this platform of people who like use APIs all day. They want to know everything about their APIs. And like, there seemed to be just a lot of places we could collaborate there. And so it, it made a lot of sense. Um, and, and I think that to me, what was also compelling is Postman is, is a high growth startup. So it wasn't like going to a company where the pace of development or the pace of release slows to a grind. You know, we're, we're still releasing on about a weekly cadence. Um, we, we have the freedom to be an alpha. We don't have super onerous security reviews at this point in our alpha. Postman has really, um, you know, gone above and beyond to make sure we can preserve a lot of the velocity and innovation that, you know, we, we had as, as an independent startup. And, and that, that was what was promised to us. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, been delivering so far. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it feels like there's a natural alignment with the focus on APIs to a company like Postman. And I, I don't know, I have no data to back this up. So I'd be wildly wrong, but it, I feel like there's a lot of, um, history and examples of startups that get acquired by really big entities where those companies kind of just like, you know, die on the vine to some degree because they aren't given the resources or the time of day to actually continue the work. 
Um, so it looks great as an entrepreneur, but might not necessarily be overall like a great outcome for the product versus being acquired maybe by a fast growing startup where they're like, you know, not going to waste time sort of just, you know, buying something for the sake of like, of, of hiding it or not doing anything with it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's, you know, I, I feel like Postman is in a situation where, uh, the, you know, leadership was way, way too focused on actually growing to acquire a company because they, you know, for vanity reasons or just in case, you know, to, to like quiet a competitor or anything like that. I think it was very much the CEO said, look, you know, if, if you join, this is our bet in API observability and here's, here's how we could work together. And that, that was very compelling to me because I'm, like I said, the the mission and vision to me are more important than remaining solo or um, you know, making certain amounts of money or even you know, like any any other reason. So now that you had this experience of being an entrepreneur on your belt, under your belt, and actually you know even having a successful exit, think you'd ever do it again? I think it really depends. I realized from this whole experience that I'm really a dev tools person. There's very little else in the world I want to do. So I have, um, I'm friends with some other exited founders and I'll catch up with them. And they're like, I'm, I'm really into this space now. And I'm just like, nope, <laughs> still into dev tools, going to still be into dev tools. Um, so I, I think I learned a few things about dev tools. I think once you do it once, you either decide, oh, it's not that hard uh, or you decide, oh, this is actually pretty hard. And um, <laughs> I think my conclusion is it's actually really hard to start a like sustaining long-term dev tools company. But I thought this from the beginning. I think that if there is an existing company that allows you to do the dev thing, the dev tools thing you want to do, you save yourself a lot of time <laughs> in some ways because you can directly work on it. Because I feel like in terms of like setting up the company, like, you know, getting, getting like the right stuff built to like start doing like the cool dev stuff, it, it takes a while. So, um, so I, and I also think that, you know, even though dev tools, um, is, is having something of a moment in terms of, or un, until the recent, um, investment turn of, of, uh, of the tide, but, you know, dev tools was having a, a good moment, um, in terms of getting investment in terms of there, there are like way more dev tools companies than before. I think it definitely is possible to start a long lasting freestanding dev tools company. You know, Hash HashiCorp is a company I super look up to Docker, um, had its ups and downs, but I'm, I'm a big fan of, of what they're doing these days. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, th I think it's really hard. I, I think if you're a database company, there's like there people pay for databases. I, I think like people's relationship with money and dev tools is, is a little more fraught. So I'm, um, I think I would have to have a pretty good idea of like, okay, this is why this is an independent company and not just part of another company to do it. Um, I, I, I don't think I have the, the, the gene of like, well, I just really want to run my own company. So I, I think, I think to me, that's, that's the big requirement. Like there's, you know, I feel like you have so many productive working years of your life. You kind of have to think about, you know, how many years do I want to spend like setting something up versus like executing on something. And um, yeah, I, I think, I think it would really depend on if I, uh, if I found the right thing to start again. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I think that if your goal is to work on dev tools and you can find a place where you can work on dev tools and kind of have, you know, some level of, uh, you know, creative license to do that, then you don't have to do all the other things come with entrepreneurship, fundraising and go to market and other parts that it, it, you have to think through and own that take away from the time that you might be 
focusing on actually building the product that you care about building. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, that was a very compelling part of joining Postman. Um, I, I feel like if there had been more dev tools companies at this stage when I was thinking about starting Akita, it, it would have been very compelling to think about joining them at the time. I like to me, I, I feel like you start something if there's nothing, nothing out there that does the thing you want, and um, you know, you're uh, well. Well, also, I, I think there's multiple reasons because if there's something out there that could do the thing you want, you don't want to start a company anyway. You're gonna get crushed. But but I think you have to believe there's significant advantage in um in starting something to do it. I guess you could start something that exists, provided you have kind of a unique take on it, or there's existing pain with that thing that people are using. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you know, like I, I guess you feel like you're uniquely positioned to do something because I, I think that also w- once you start thinking through like this is what my company should do, you think through like if Datadog could spin up a team to do this, or you know if so and so could spin up a team to do it. it there's there, it's kind of a not not the best use of your time either. And so um yeah, I, I think I, I think I, I like the reasons to start a company that for me are are like you know very very not different from the reason someone should start a company in general. But um, I, I think that when I first started Akita, I um, I was more optimistic about what can't be done at a different company. And once I started really thinking through strategy and things like that, I sort of realized like, hey, actually, you have to be interested in, in like a pretty narrow set of things for this to work. So as we start to wrap up, I want to uh, go quick fire here. So I'm going to ask you some questions. This is something new we're trying. So don't think too hard. Just give me the, the first answer that comes into your mind. So first off, if you could master one skill you don't have right now, what would it be? Being a better sleeper. I feel like sleep is the foundation of all the rest of life. I'm a terrible sleeper. I have to work so hard at it. If I could sleep better, more easily, go to sleep faster, stay asleep, like my life would be so much easier. If you could invest in one company that's not the company you work for, who would it be? I think Common Room. I feel like I still believe dev tools are having a moment. I think um, dev communities are really interesting. And um, tracking, not in an enterprise way, but tracking um, you know, individual developer adopters of dev tools is very powerful. And I am optimistic about the future of, of dev tools, uh, startups in general. So yeah, Common Room. What tool or technology could you not live without? I'm, I like to think that I can live without anything, but I can't live without most things. Um, I would say it's, it's probably my super high, um, high resolution monitor. So I, I think that I like, I am five times more productive with my monitor. I, um, whenever I work without it, I get eye strain, I get less done. Um, it's, it's, it's very great. Yeah. Which person, if which you the most in your career? I would say probably my undergrad mentor, um, a person named Margot Seltzer. She, um, well, she taught me what imposter syndrome was. She taught me not to make a big deal out of making mistakes. And she taught me to keep going about stuff. And um, it was Margot and um, another undergrad professor I had, Radhika Nagpal, who told me to start finishing things. Because she noticed that I, um, I sort of assumed that I wasn't smart enough to finish some of the big projects I took on. And she observed that, no, you're just actually not finishing them. Like being smart has nothing to do with it. You're just not doing them. Um, I think the combination of those two things, because I think for, for somehow I, I had this notion that, you know, I'm not a genius. So like, 
I work on something for a day and if it doesn't work, I, I should just give up. And, um, I, I, or, you know, um, I would say like, oh, like I'm not smart enough. If I ask a question and it was the wrong question, I should just stop asking questions. And they, they both took me aside and they were like, who do you think you are? Like, you need to actually put work in. Um, you need to be wrong sometimes. You need to, you know, do stuff that takes longer than a day. And, um, I, I think, I think teaching me to actually put the work in, I, I think sometimes lack of confidence is an excuse just to do nothing. Uh, which I was clearly doing sometimes. Um, and uh, I, I think I think they taught me not to do that slash called me out. What's the probability that AI equals doom for the human race? The people who worry that AI can take everything over, that's so much hubris. That's saying that like humans can create something so much bigger than ourselves that kills us. And here's what I'm seeing. Like, So I have this blog post I wrote a few years ago about what I call the spam filter apocalypse. So we have this friend who didn't come to this event we organized because we got spam filtered in her email. And um, then I talked to some other people. I realized like, hey, spam filters are actually really bad. You know, I talked to some people, they were starting a start up, they actually like almost died because no one was receiving their emails because they were getting spam filtered. And I was like, oh my God, spam filters are so powerful. Not because they're smart, like they're Bayesian filters. It's, it's you know, like one of like the dumbest AIs you could have out there. They're powerful because we allow them to be a, a layer between us and our email. And so I, I think well, it's one of those things. Yeah. Like, I feel like in life, you know, there people say you can only feel bad. People can only make you feel bad if you make yourself feel bad. I feel like AI can only take stuff over if we let them take over because people are like, oh my God, these machines, they're going to attack. Like you can turn off your computer. Like <laughs> the only reason your computer is not turning off is because you are letting it not turn off. You know what I mean? And so um, this is this relates to my point generally that software is the biggest social problem we're not talking about. Like we're letting software have all this power that it doesn't need to have. We're not talking about the power it's having. And maybe this is what people mean, but I don't think so. I feel like people are actually imagining like the AI like jumps out of the, the monitor or something like that. Like that, like I, I'm like zero percent afraid of that, but. You know, I, um, I, I read a really good book a few years ago called The Fires by this guy named Joe Flood, very ironically. Um, and it was about how, um, a, a very progressive government in New York City, because of algorithms by the Rand Corporation, actually ended up allowing the destruction by fire of a bunch of black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods in New York. And the danger there was, you know, they trusted an algorithm. The algorithm told them to underallocate fi like firefighting resources and and, uh, you know, ma maintenance of infrastructure in those neighborhoods. And it, it, it led to outcomes that were against what they stood for as a progressive government. And so I feel like those are, are very uh, powerful cases. But that's not AI, man. That's like algorithms from the 70s. And, and sure, like you could you could argue that's AI and like spam filters are also AI. But I think it's very different than how people are thinking about the doom today. Awesome. Anything else you'd like to share and how, how can people reach out to you? Um, so I'm on X a lot. I'm uh, Jean Kasor on X. Um, and, and that's pretty much the only way. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, email kind of works, but I, I get a lot of spam, <laughs> maybe due to not trusting spam filters. <laughs> well, Jean, thanks so much for coming on the Software Huddle. I think we covered the, the gambit of topics today. I think uh, we'd love to have you back down the road. I'm sure there's a ton of other things we could get into. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. This was super fun. Thank you. Cheers.